Welcome to America This Week from the Harris Poll. I'm John Gersma, and I'm with Libby Rodney. Libby, how are you? Hey, John. How you doing? I'm good. There's some yeah. really interesting data that was in the field this week, right? Absolutely. Can't wait to get into it. All right. Well, let's do it. If you guys aren't familiar with our show, we are both pollsters at the Harris Poll. We really focus on trying to understand the pulse of society so that leaders can take this information and, and apply it to their businesses. And so we're going to cover three stories today, and we're going to talk about them from a, a range of different viewpoints. And Libby, why don't you talk a little bit about what we're going to cover in this week's episode? Yeah, sure. I think we have some great stuff for you. So, you know, the first one is what's the output of economic frustrations for Americans, John? It's FOMO. FOMO. <laughs> so we're going to get into that. FOMO never dies. FOMO is just the best fear of missing out for those of you who don't know. Um, the second kind of story is um, Americans are really finding their source of immunity. And it's not just in, you know, uh, vaccinations, but it's in, it's actually in the community. And then our third story is like, man, I think we covered some real cool stuff this week about Gen Z interns and recent hires. And sounds like they were pretty lonely this summer. So we're going to kick it off and, and talk about that as well. Oh, that sounds great. Well, let's get in first and talk about, as we always do every week, the weekly heat. Uh, the weekly heat are three of the week's most important polling numbers. And the first number, Libby, is 86. You know what that stands for? 86% of Americans who were concerned about the economy and inflation. And if that wasn't bad enough, 72% uh, believe that the worst of inflation is still ahead of us. So those numbers sort of continue to um, be the dominant narrative in American uh, society right now. But right behind it is the number 69. And this is related because 69% of Americans say they're likely to cut back on their spending for the rest of the year. Maybe I'll stop there for a sec. Libby, I mean, that's kind of significant, right? Because consumer spending has really propped up this really fragile economy. Yeah, it really is. And 56% of Americans, so over half, said they'll also adjust their 2022 financial plans um, and dip into their short-term savings right now. So, you know, really thinking about holiday spending is mm. is a big one. Absolutely. So more on that, I think, as we sort of get closer into that time period, this sort of back to school, back to work, back to savings theme seems to be emerging uh, this week. And then Libby, the last number is 47. So interestingly, you know, you've read and heard about the recent student loan forgiveness program. So among those Americans who qualified for that program, nearly half uh, at 47% say the cancellation either completely or just about covers their remaining debt. So it seems like there's probably a lot of, of happy Americans out there that, that had student loans, at least when yeah. it comes to this program. A lot of financial freedom parties and celebrations, hopefully. A little bit of relief. Yeah. All right. All right. I think we're going to delve into that topic in greater detail in the coming weeks. Um, but yeah, let's jump into our first big story. So as you talked about, um, you know, we have all these different economic measures, right? We've got GDP, but we now we have FOMO. And um, I thought this was really interesting. So what is happening here is that this economic downturn that we've all been living through is certainly causing tremendous stress and anxiety, but now it's creating 
a sense of loss of experiences for Americans as you're starting to have to make tougher choices. And they're really pushing back on leaders. Um, what we saw in the data Libby, right? 55%, the majority of Americans feel upset now that leaders are not doing enough for the economy. And that extends to 44% of outright anger because they don't really know when this economic sort of malaise is going to end. And four in 10 Americans, this is the really important stat here, they actually regret in missing out on experiences that they can't afford to participate in now. I mean, Libby, what do you think about this? This is this is the really big stat here in my mind because it has real implications on what brands and marketers can be doing for consumers. Um, this idea that people in the pandemic, we missed out on experiences because we had health concerns and there were things that we couldn't do. And now there's an overwhelming, you know, starting to be tipping point of frustration that, again, I'm not going to be able to do the experiences I want to do because there might be some sort of economic downturn. So I know, John, we were both in New York during the times of right after 9-11, during the 20, uh, 2008 recession. And I think it's just a really great playbook that I've seen marketers use over and over again in cities like New York, but I know across all, um, at least metropolitan areas, to bring experiences to people and to make those experiences free or very accessible. Hmm. Um, it just does a ton of brand building for brands right now as people feel economically strapped. So it's a really interesting and, and cool way to bring, build relationships and loyalty. Are there any examples of those that, that come to Yeah, mind? I mean, right now, for example, um, I'm on my way tonight to head to a Nike experience off the court at the shed. And it's, you know, one of their metaverse experiences. And just in general, I would say Nike in particular is one to watch in terms of the experiences that they're giving and, and bringing to people, mostly because they're doing it at the intersection of the evolution of the the internet as well. So they're bringing you not an only an unforgettable experience, but one that has metaverse like experiences, properties, AR, VR, etc. So they're kind of letting you escape into these worlds and they're doing it for free as long as you're kind of part of their loyalty fandom and, and no one does that better than Nike. So I think hmm. rip it out of Nike's playbook and, and go do some of that for yourself. That's really interesting. Kind of this idea of like marketing is public works, right? To sort of take a leadership position and understand that, that people are hurting and try to create some invitations of things that you can do uh, on a budget, I guess, as it were. Yeah. I just remember also, you know, being in the recession during the 2008 days and a lot of stores similar to what New York looks like now, a lot of stores were closed up and it, it created a lot of opportunity to create experimental marketing places. Like I remember Delta had like a Delta lounge, you know, where mm -hmm. they would just hand out free lunch, just like random kind of things like that. But those are the things that when we talk to consumers and we say, you know, what's a memorable brand, they actually think of those generous based experiences, those escape based experiences, those entertainment based experiences first. So if they feel like they can't financially afford it to do it themselves, like it actually creates a big opportunity for marketers to step in and do it for them. That's really interesting. And, you know, I want to go back to something you said at the beginning, because I think you really hit something there, which is that it, it seems like inflation is now just another, like more powerful variant of COVID in the consumer's mind, right? 
because you just have like Americans just sort of living through all these different interruptions and different sacrifices that they've had to make. And now, you know, the fact that 40% regret and missing out on experiences because they can't afford to, to participate in them, you know, because of costs and high, high prices and, and stretched budgets. It's just a different way that I think that great brands look at the consumer marketplace versus the way an ordinary business might. I mean, they might be saying, okay, well, we got to go to value pricing or we have to just think about our own economic cycles. It's really sort of an emotional, empathic view to try to offer something different. You think that's kind of what's going on here? Yeah. And John, I think to your, your point is really interesting. So a lot of brands in their own, in an economic downturn, also protect their own downside. And right. so there's commodities, it's it's being driven to the lowest common denominator. Um, but then the other brands who really double down and inv- over invest, and you see this also in startups and in, in companies that invest in themselves during economic downtimes, those are usually the winners when the market cycles back up um, that everyone then is trying to catch up to. So thinking about an economic downturn with a long-term strategy is, you know, it's challenging, um, but it's 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 actually an optimal time for investment. Probably the same way it's an optimal time for people in stock to invest. You know, it's mm-hmm. like you, you're always supposed to invest when no one else is doing it. So it's it's kind of that time to invest in your relationships with consumers when everyone else is backing out. It kind of creates uh- some white space. You're totally right. I love that. It's this idea of sort of marketing gestures, almost like goodwill on a balance sheet, right? Yeah. It's like just understanding that Americans are really hurting right now. They're going through painful trade-offs. You know, they're having to, to cut corners for their family, whether it's their family entertainment or their family education or, or other things that they're trying to do to provide for uh, for their children and, and others. So, I think that's really interesting. And it was also interesting to note that among the generational cohorts that were most affected by this FOMO that you talked about, it's at um, the highest group were millennials. And again, those are parents, mm-hmm. right? That's parents with kids. Yeah. So yeah, we should keep looking at, at this sort of FOMO angle on inflation. Uh, we also saw it just interesting, Libby, to, before we move on, there was mm-hmm. another uh, study that we did recently with Bloomberg. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. I think it was like two weeks ago. But we found that two-thirds of employees said that, you know, the current economic conditions were a key reason why they plan to stay at their current jobs. So, again, it's like you have this growing sense that your options are being reduced. And that's all sort of inflation-related. Yeah. And that's a rough one, right? So, you feel like you're missing out on life. You feel like you're stuck. Um, you feel like you can't afford things. I mean, that's the kind of mindset that's happening right now and, and cycling through the American psyche. So it's like, how do you then come and relieve pressure in that mindset is kind of the big task at hand, I think. Mm, got it. Good. Hey, well, let's talk about our next story. We have a little palate cleanser, do we? In between yeah. Yeah. So we, we thought that you know, I'm, I'm sure, John, you've um, you've kind of heard like community before and everyone, every time we talk about community as a trend to clients, they kind of roll their eyes. Um, they're like, yeah, that's a boring word. I, we get it. 
Um, but we're actually starting to see there's kind of this immunity factor in the community that increasing Americans are turning towards themselves for stability. So if you think about everything else as being chaos, it's like, who do you turn to? And so we see that 30% of people from our Harris Poll Weekly Tracker said that people, um, it was increasingly important to them, that community was increasingly important to them compared to their feelings pre-pandemic. So we're leaning more into community than we have been in the past. Um, and that 67%, so over two thirds of people were feeling more compassionate about taking time to check in with their community and those around them. Um, and then the last thing here is like, who, what people are creating positive change in their communities and Americans, you know, wanted to give a round of applause again for healthcare workers, first responders mm -hmm. and teachers. But I think what's interesting is just this idea that we're getting more and more community um, focused and also that kind of hits on web three principles of how do we decentralize but also create community around Interesting. it. Interesting, yeah. Um, but I, you know, I think that I was just, you know, wondering from your point of view, I do think that the stack crisis that we're facing, you do have an like an intentional need to turn back to the community as a stabilizer. But, you know, I think the thing that I'd love to your point of view on John is like, is there anything new here happening? Like, are, are, do we just always turn to community in times of crisis? Or is there some something important that we're seeing in this shift? And is that, you know, a part of also technology, et cetera? Like, what do, you, what do you kind of see? You know, Libby, I think this is highly related and we get some empirical evidence out of our COVID tracker. You know, we've been in the, in the, in the American households talking to people since March of 2020 every week. And so I just went back and looked at a little bit of the, the trended data on this story uh, to kind of prepare for this. And it was really interesting that um, as sort of the vaccine started to roll out and there was all this consternation early on in, in 2020, um, even before those uh, rolled out, but people were just questioning, you know, who to trust, you know, the difference in the Delta and trust between two points, I'll just use two, um, mm -hmm. local media was at 69% and social media was at 33%. And then we looked at another question and trended it out over 2021 and local government's handling of COVID. So this is in their communities. How did Americans feel about it? They were clearly frustrated, you know, closed stores and, and all that, but you still had 76% approval, but you only had 38% across two different administrations, um, you know, trended out. And mm -hmm. so I just think, you know, a two X difference. And I think the lesson here and there is something big that's happening, which is these stacked crises that seem to now just become part of the, the, the waves that we just live our lives. They don't seem to have, you know, any, any sort of you know, regular cadence to them other than the fact that they just keep coming. They're just becoming too much to bear. And so trust has just gone micro, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I feel, don't you think Libby trust bubbles up? It, it's not trickling down. The old model was trust your institutions, trust your, your leaders and everyone will take care of you. But I think admiration is, is centered on Main Street. I mean, that's where you can actually, you know, feel, feel change and, and feel like you can be a part of something. 
Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense to what we hear in the field too when we talk to people because they don't have faith that governments will kind of figure it out, but they do have faith in individuals and their own communities that they will enact change that will make their life ultimately better. Um, so also probably the fact that change is felt on an individual level or that you believe that people as individuals can change and then that maybe will change a system also gets back to your micro trust point of view, which I think is really spot on. Well, uh, I'm excited to kind of go deeper into that, but I really want to make sure we have time to talk about this awesome last story. <laughs> this is the story of the lonely summer intern, right? We're, we're back to school and, um, I think it's worth looking back real briefly at, at our endless summer and the fact that um, it wasn't necessarily all it was cut out to be for young people. And Libby, this is a great example of, um, you know, we always ask for polling ideas. Mm -hmm. And this, this was a polling idea that, that came from, from one of our listeners who we then employed to work alongside our intern. And so Maggie Hansel, who came up with this idea, and Cole Dorsey was one of our summer interns. Uh, together, the, the two of them actually fielded the questions and sort of interpreted the data. And uh, this ran this week in Bloomberg. But um, so here's the story, right? So there's so much going on with um, remote hybrid work, right? People trying to decide, you know, leaders want what Apple wants everyone back three days a week. A lot of that is starting to kick into high gear this fall. But what we saw in this data with, with Bloomberg in a survey of American interns was that they felt lonely in the office. They found it was difficult to make connections. You know, it was difficult to get feedback on Zoom or learn the company culture. And when they were in the office, you know, they were working remote and hybrid too, most of them. They encountered sort of half empty offices, absent managers, and, and it was really sporadic, difficult sort of situation in terms of networking and socializing and all that. And so, you know, inside the numbers, we found that 55% um, of these Gen Z sort of interns said that they felt like they were missing out on an important step in adulthood because of how the pandemic had affected office culture over the summer. And, you know, looking deeper into these, two thirds of these interns um, that were responded to our poll said that understanding corporate office culture is essential to their career but the actual remote model that they encountered this summer made it really difficult to participate in that culture. That was 56%, the majority of interns said that. And then we, we looked at interns that were in fully remote or hybrid roles, and one in four, nearly 37%, said they felt like they were falling behind their counterparts who work in the office full time. And lastly, why that was happening is that there was this disconnect in their working arrangements, right? 46% of interns uh, who were working remotely um, said that their managers, only a third of them were in the office. And for the 33% of interns who worked in person, nearly a quarter said their <laughs> managers worked remotely. So they were like ships passing in the night. But Libby, isn't there a pattern here, right? This is the interrupted generation, right? Gen Z are the ones that had their college interrupted, their graduation ceremonies interrupted, and now they're telling us they had their first uh, summer internship interrupted. So what do you think here? Yeah, no wonder they're pissed. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the, the key stat here, 
that kind of tells you everything is two thirds of respondents said that understanding corporate office culture is essential to their career. The issue is what is corporate office culture now? Mm -hmm. And I think that's, so I think it's, I do think I have a lot of empathy for Gen Z. As you said, the generation interrupted, they've had everything that was kind of a traditional life stage or moment or something that you could share amongst generations, just be kind of disrupted in front of them. However, there's a lot of new opportunity to reimagine corporate office culture. Um, and so what I think is particularly interesting is this idea that they feel like they're falling behind those of their peers who are in a full-time office culture, because that's a little different than what we hear from other data that's like, hey, I, I want a flexible career. I want, you know, lifestyle and balance. And I don't think, you know, and there's been a lot of news in the last week coming from especially Wall Street firms that it's like a firm return to the office or else mentality that's especially being kind of riding the waves of what could be an economic down cycle. Um, but I think that's a dangerous thing because it's like, we're not just going to go back to our old office culture. Like if you talk to, we talk to frequently, uh, Nicholas Bloom, who's a economist at Stanford, who's head of their hybrid work, um, division. And he's like, for the most part, you see all corporations falling in line in this hybrid model. The question is, what does the hybrid model become and what is corporate office culture look like. And that's the thing, John, that I don't think that we, you and I talk about a lot, but it has not been quite sussed out yet. Absolutely. And so there's just going to be just like, there's like the loss of learning that we saw last, you know, with the kids, with the elementary school mm -hmm. kids, mm -hmm. I feel like we're having a loss of learning on new hires and interns. That isn't necessarily fair to them, but that managers and HR and just design systems of the office have yet to wrap their head around. No, I absolutely agree with you. And I think what was really interesting inside this, this data, because it's complex, right? It's a complex issue. We've seen on the other side of this that, um, you know, BIPOC workers and, and women felt that remote working was better for them overall in terms of, of their happiness and, and their effectiveness. But what I think is interesting with the, with young people in this situation is that they're kind of telling us that remote working doesn't mean remote management, right? And so to your point about sort of reinventing the system, clearly it's going to be hybrid and remote, but how are we going to as managers adapt to the fact that we need to think of new ways to be able to be more effective managers and mentors if we're using Zoom or how we're going to structure and organize our time for when we're in the office that that is critical, valuable learning moments, not people sit around in cubes and doing their emails that they could do at home. Yeah. I, I and, don't, you and you I mean? and I've had some discussion around this and I think we had some pretty good ideas that we might as well share. You know, I mean, I think one of them was this idea that we that there could be like a lab day, mm -hmm. you know, kind of micro bridging from college to say like, hey, there, there's some big problems we need to solve. Um, another one could be like upskilling hours. We know especially younger employees want employers to invest in them and invest in their education. So similar Absolutely. to happy hours, there could be like education hours. 
And then there could be things like, um, you know, co-working play centers. We know a lot of people want families or have families, and maybe there's a way you could drop off your kids and, and get some work done. So I think that the, the role of the office, that the reason you come in, the tune in is really something that employers have to design for the future. And then there's all these kind of cool new um, B2B companies coming out like Cadence, John, which What's is like, Cadence? Cadence is like an AI platform that will say, hey, John, Libby, Jack, Ben, you're on this project. You all can meet these hours. You're going to come in now Tuesday at 11. And so, because right now that the management of trying to figure out when everyone can come to the office and can't is too challenging. But if it was, if, it, if your project manager was yeah. more an AI system, it will tell you exactly when you need to be in the office and also what's the objective, right? Which is part of any good meeting. So I think there's a lot of hope for what the future of office culture might look and act and feel like. And Gen Z can be a big part of defining that. I love that. It's almost like, you know, AI enabled serendipity because it's, mm -hmm. it's so hard to explain, but like, right, the, the mentoring, the contextualization behind the meeting, the learning that sort of comes from the, the conversations in the hall or just the accidental meetings, like all that sort of stuff, I do feel is such a critical part of development, especially uh, for young people. So that's really, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah. And then you wouldn't have to just be sitting there for no reason. You know, you'd have yeah. a kind of purpose and understanding that your team's actually going to be in there that time that, <laughs> that you're there. You're not going to be sitting by yourself in a cubicle wondering where is the office culture gone, you know? Yeah, so. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, I could talk about this for hours, but I do think it to leave, leave this, I do think it's interesting that young people, I think Kana called managers out on this. And I think it's a it's an important voice to have in the debate on mm -hmm. how you organize, you know, very effective uh, teams around around a hybrid model because young people are are looking for the mentoring and they're looking for um, for the managing. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been America this week. Libby, any last thoughts? Uh, tell our audience what they could do next if they want to. Uh, yeah, so if you want to create your own poll with us, <laughs> please be in contact. You know, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can find John Gersma or um, he's on Twitter and on LinkedIn. I'm at Libby Rodney on LinkedIn primarily. And, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback. Leave us a review on Apple or Spotify and just drop us a note and tell us how you're feeling. We'd love to hear that. That sounds great. All right. Take care, everybody. 